0: Do you want to learn how to remote view? Now is your chance. The International Remote Viewing Association is offering eight weeks of remote viewing classes instructed by my friend, Michelle Freed. Don't miss this once in a lifetime opportunity starting Saturday, September 3rd, 10 a.m. Pacific. The course is only $150. And for members of the IRVA, It's only 110. Just visit irva.org slash events slash registration to sign up now. Welcome back to Forbidden Knowledge News. I'm your host, Chris Matthew. Tonight, my guest is Bruce Fenton. Before I bring him on, I want to tell you about my Patriot Supply. They are the experts in emergency preparedness. Uh, right now, we're at an extremely critical time in our history, and it really wouldn't hurt to have an emergency food supply. You don't want to get caught unprepared just in case anything happens in our crazy world right now. I have one, and I feel so much better. Right now, you can get $70 off a two-week supply and $100 off a four-week supply. They're awesome food. It stays good in storage for up to 25 years. Just visit preparewithfkn.com or just click the link in the description to pick up your emergency food supply today. Also, subscribe to Forbidden Knowledge News on lbry.tv. It's our official backup channel. We also have a brand new show called Beyond Classified. It is exclusively on Rockfin. I talk about Rockfin all the time, an amazing new uncensored platform for free thinking content creators and independent media. And finally, get your tickets to Forbidden Knowledge NewsCon 2021. It's coming up soon, April 2nd, 3rd, and 4th. We're going to have 12 amazing presenters, and the full three-day conference is only $29.99. You can't beat that price. Uh, Go to the ForbiddenKnowledge.News, our website, to check out the lineup and pick up your tickets today. All those links are in the description. Today, I want to welcome back to the show Bruce Fenton. He is a data scientist currently researching the areas of technosignatures, genomic SETI, panspermia, and paleoanthropology. His research activities have been featured in the UK's Telegraph newspaper, Science Channel's Unexplained Files, and History's Ancient Aliens. He is the science feature editor for Earth's Ancient Podcasts and also a regular guest speaker on radio shows around the globe, and he has written several books. Bruce, welcome back. How are you doing today?
1: Thank you so much for having me back. It's a pleasure. Uh, Absolutely.
0: Yeah, I've, I've been looking forward today. It's going to be a fascinating discussion based on what you sent me earlier. You're going to be presenting evidence of an ancient alien ship explosion, mm-hmm. um, and we're going to see where that takes us with time permits, but I definitely want to get into that. But first, it's been a long time since you've been on. It's been over a year. Um, could you give the audience just a little bit more about yourself and your background and kind of what led you down this path that you're currently on?
1: Yeah, certainly. Certainly. I mean, um, my interest in, I suppose we call anomalous science and ancient mysteries goes back um, to a, probably about 10, 11 years old when I, I started to read about, you know, things like the the Yeti, the pyramids, um, Loch Ness Monster, you know, the classics, I guess the classics of the fields, right? You know, all these the really big mysteries. Um, so I was interested from, you know, really early, you know, really early on in life in these topics, um, and of course, that progressed with time, as, you know, went to uni and, you know had some time on my hands to look a bit deeper and reading you know, a bit more heavily in these areas and starting to understand that there was a whole wealth of strange science that we don't quite understand you know from psychic you know uh, paranormal uh, and as well as you know in physics you know that there's all sorts of mysteries that weren't resolved so it's been yeah, kind of a, a lifelong process of becoming exponentially more serious you know in these topics um and leading on to where i am today where you know it's most of my time is spent researching Um, or or reading in related topics Um, so it's been yeah quite a journey
0: yes definitely Um, now I want to get into the information you sent me earlier Um, I guess we should start with the backstory behind this this crashed ship
1: Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely I mean if some people may be aware but back in um, with June last year I had a new book come out which was exogenesis hybrid humans um, a scientific history of genetic modification and that's that is basically an expanded and improved kind of book based around the information from the other book hybrid humans that my wife and I kind of published a year before and so it's so a kind of a deeper dive into the topic so I mean, anyone that's obviously read that book uh, hybrid humans would have some idea but exogenesis is kind of expanded there's a lot more detail in there so I've also had a sh- short documentary that we created, which is on Amazon Prime, if people want to see that on the same topic. Um, I think that's actually called uh, 780,000 BC, something like I can I remember the name of my own documentary, but they'll find, I can always send, give you the link to that later. But so I've, that's based around the same information. And of course, I've been um, doing some radio shows and some writing on the topic. So since you've last seen me, that's kind of what I've been doing. Um, and now it's got to a point where I realized that, you know, you can reach a certain segment of the population through books, you know, YouTube's, um, Amazon videos. But if you want to tap into the kind of the scientific community and some elements, you know, in the media, the mainstream media, I think you have to in the end uh, dabble with writing papers that can go across from peer review, right? So so that's what that's what I'm working on now. So that's what's happened with the information. Now, for people that aren't familiar with what this information is. Go back into, let me think, when was there was a book that came out in 2003 called Our Charinga When the First Ancestors Were Created by an Australian lady called Valerie Barrow. Now, she details in that uh, an encounter she had with an ancient artifact in Australia, an Aboriginal artifact called a Charinga. Um, Charingas have a really interesting history and people can go in I've look at, you know, some of the information online about them. There's some good academic papers as well on them from anthropologists that essentially they're considered to be like a sort of stone receptacle holding the consciousness of what's called an Alcharinga being, like a creation being, and that these are also containers of, you know, of immense wisdom, very sacred, they're kept away from the general population, looked after by you know, high elders, essentially what we think of as kind of shamanic elders, um, and would only come out for ceremonial purposes and only be handled by the, you know, those elders that are you know, c- considered to be able to you know, safely interact with these. So they have a really interesting law around them, That makes them already sound like you know something like an alien artifact you know what we'd think of as an alien artifact from an aboriginal point of view a spiritual object you know sacred object but obviously it's all relative terms you know if we were to look at it from a western view we'd be thinking probably in terms of a technology right you know you've got an object which somehow holds information which has a consciousness which you know we'd think of something like an ai possibly now that story really stuck out to me that when you know when she kind of Some of the elements she doesn't go there with saying what it is but i realized it had so many elements in common with what's called a bracewell probe um now if anyone's not familiar with that essentially there was a scientist called ronald bracewell who theorized that if there was an advanced extraterrestrials out there they might develop their own seti kind of search for extraterrestrial intelligence programs in which they would use probes to explore the galaxy now Obviously, that's kind of where we're going. You know, we've got Starshot and Yuri Milner, you know, who's funding all these probes to go out. They're going to send some in the next few years. Um, so we know it's a kind of a logical direction for a SETI program to go down, right? So they theorize that you know any advanced extraterrestrials could do that. They could send out probes all around the Milky Way. And in fact, within about a million years, you could have probes to anywhere in the Milky Way, even at, you know, subluminal speeds. You don't need to to have warp drives even to do this, right? You just need to be a long-lived species and have some time to do this. In fact, you could be extinct and your probes could still be going out, right? So that's the thing about durable probes, especially if they have artificial intelligence and any sort of level of what's called um, uh, self-repair, there's there's a Von Neumann self-repair. If they can mend themselves and maintain they they can be technically immortal, these these objects, right? So when you put that in that context and you're told that these, these artifacts you know are receptacles of consciousness they're aware that they've been left here um, and that they can communicate that that's essentially the definition of a, a or a sentinel probe a, an object that sits on a planetary surface and monitors can communicate with its home civilization and potentially be instructed to make contact with any civilization that arises on a planet now so, so you can see how this the science that we understand it from mainstream theorizing is meshing very well with this description we're getting from these Aboriginal accounts of these artifacts and from the information that's in Valerie's book, you know, and her encounter with this object, which then basically transmitted um, a whole lost history of human origins, a visitation to our planet uh, and this entire narrative. And again, Funnily enough, that's exactly the kind of thing that the leading edge scientists fear. As they say, such an object might have recorded the whole of Earth's history and be able to play it back to us. And that is actually what's happened here. So it's really funny. So at first it would sound like woo woo, but then you start to realize actually at the cutting edge, that's the scenario that a lot of the academics actually expect might happen is we encounter one of these probes, it makes contact, it has a record of all of our history, um, replays it to us as part of that first contact. And um, is then able to begin the process of a kind of opening up of communication between two civilizations. Um, And very quickly, I'll just add on to that as well. Apart from Valerie, there's another person who's very involved in this story, which is um, uh, an elder, an Aboriginal elder called um, Jerry Bostock, who's unfortunately passed on. But he, he, from very early on in her account of this, you know, he basically kind of turns up at her house um, in a kind of a synchronous, Fashion. She didn't she didn't know him. In fact, she'd never met any Aboriginal people directly before that. Um, and so, you know, it was one of those very strange kind of what looks like an orchestrated event, really, I'd say, from the intelligence, because, you know, this guy happens to turn up and then, you know, he tells her about a sacred site which they should go to with the artifact. They go there and then there's further communications, a kind of time slip where they are shown, you know, the arrival of a craft, an incident, a crashed saucer in the water, and they see this all visually. Um, and again, people might say, "Well, you know, so woo, it sounds strange." But then again, you know, are we going to underestimate what an advanced extraterrestrials technology can do? And I think that, that that's where we're at with this. So this has inspired me to then go away and sort of use the information she's presented in her work, which is quite detailed, um, to see whether I could find evidence of a narrative of an arrival of a craft, uh, its destruction, which is explained—it's a crystalline craft destroyed in space in orbit, melts, pieces rain down. Um, the other two big pieces of this narrative are that five years later, there is a, an asteroid bombardment of this planet. I thought, well, that's going to leave some signatures. And the final piece is, of course, is modification of an early hominin species, which will lead to the first Homo sapiens. So that was the main arc and that was the information that gripped me. And um, I decided that, you know, I'd look for it. If it was there in the records, if I could find support for it, then I would write up, you know, a book on it. Uh, And I found, what I consider to be hand in glove uh, in, you know information out there in the academic records. Um, but now it's got to a stage where I realize that you've I've also got to present that in a in an academic fashion, which is not my preferred way of doing it. I like engaging with the the general public, um, communicating science, you know, um, to non-academics and having those conversations. But if we're going to change a paradigm, particularly in this way, you know, presenting a techno signature, what be the first techno signature, um, I have to you know, make a sort of a you know an effort to go on to that that territory and present it. You know, to people that can review it and you know hopefully do more research. So I mean that's the overview. So I mean I'll, I'll go back to you and let you sort of pick up yeah. where you left. Like
0: now the, you mentioned that the ship itself had crystalline properties. Did the did the Charinga stones also have somewhat like crystalline properties as well?
1: Yeah, my suspicion, because I've, I've not handled it, I've not seen it directly myself, but my suspicion is this, again, will be a silica artifact that even if it looks like a, you know, some sort of essentially like um, an oval, I think, from what I understand, like an oval looking, you know, rock, sort of hand. So you could hold, they're not particularly huge, so it's a portable artifact, but um, again, yeah, my suspicion would be if we were to be able to analyze one of these, if the Aboriginal people um, would allow us to, that we would find it was silica, And that's my suspicion, because, of course, we know that in the future we are planning to build silica networks for artificial intelligence to inhabit. That, that's where our technology is going. Uh, and in fact, silica is a better medium for processing information than, than carbon and our brains um, that potentially you can have much faster processing speeds with silica. And that's why we look at silica main, you know, silica mainframes and um, and huge silica structures for AI going forward. In fact, um, there's a, an article, I recommend a paper called, um, uh, was it su- uh, Alien Minds? There's a paper called Alien Minds by Susan Snyder, and, and she discusses the fact that we there might be post biological intelligences out there which are just silica, essentially silica planets that you can have any size. The thing is, you think when you start to construct with silica to create super intelligences, you can have moons or planet sized silica constructions that are a singular mind, and that these will be godlike intelligences. Um, And of course you could have smaller probes and stuff, which are also inhabited by AI that are silica. um, And that these things may be everywhere. And in fact, you know, sometimes when we we look out into space and we see a moon or a planet, we don't know if that's not a life form. I mean, that's, we're starting to get to the point where we're realizing that how, how little we've known until we've hit this level of technology where we're starting to realize the likelihood that most civilizations will either have created advanced AI and have it alongside them, you know using technologies to help them or have merged with it essentially be cybernetic beings um you know using all sorts of implants and stuff, or will have gone extinct and been replaced by their ai creations and that most alien civilizations are likely to be um either ai or living alongside ai so that there's a huge chance that our first encounters with extraterrestrials directly will be with some kind of AI probes, you know, some kind of intermediary or remnant of a civilization. Um, and I, I find that, you know, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, obviously when we were growing up, we all thought, you know, alien, bug-eyed aliens and all the rest of it is what would come, but when you start to look at that science, you realize that, yeah, that, that's, although that can happen, and although, of course, beings could turn up in their ships, but we should also be expecting to encounter their technologies, and probably first, you know, in the same way that we would if we were exploring another world, we probably don't set foot on it before we've let our technologies check it out, right? I think that's, that's very yeah. sensible.
0: Yeah, that, that, would be, that would make a lot of sense. Um, now, let's talk about some of the evidence behind this. Um, you know, in the article you sent me, uh, it was questioning the origins of tektites. Um, talk about what tektites are and how this ties into that.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, the tektites are, are, are a rare phenomenon in a way. They're a kind of melt glass. A highly silica melt glass, usually around seventy-five percent silica, um, a lot of aluminium in them, sometimes around ten percent aluminium, um, and then a whole slew of other components, metals and chemicals. They're particularly interesting because there's only um, five major what's called strewn fields, which is a um, you know a f- a collection of um, textiles of the same type within a an area, a cluster. And you've got a major, you've got a major one, perhaps the most famous one actually is. The Moldavite strewn field, because I mean, Moldavite is a very distinctive green, you know, jewel-looking um, crystal. In fact, it's the only what they call the only alien gemstone because I mean, it looks like a gemstone. Um, and Moldavites have been, for a long time, in, in sort of spiritual realms, have been considered to have unusual effects on people that hold them, and and they have a whole law. In fact, it, it, they've been associated with the the Ark of the no, sorry, not with the with the, um, the Grail that it's it's theorized that the grail was actually made from from because it was supposed to be in, a, in some tellings of the grail legends it's a green stone and in others it's a, a cup made of green stone um, and th- this green stone is, is theorized to be moldavite um, and in fact moldavite artifacts were found alongside the uh, these um the venus of oh, i trying to remember so there's a in Germany, this ancient, you know, the Venus statue, I can't remember the exact name, but obviously very famous. And it's about, I think, 30,000 year old statue. And alongside that in the same dig, they found Moldavite um, knives and stuff. So Moldavite has been revered by humans for a very long time and is of great interest because it, first of all, it's a very striking stone, right? Um, but also, you know, it has this space connection, which is interesting. Now, the other strewn fields, just going to go through, we have one in North America, uh, in fact, there's arguably two, because there's two types of tectite in North America, but they're associated with the same strewn field. Uh, There's one in in West Africa and another one in South, well, sorry, no, Central America, that's fairly recently been kind of confirmed as a very small strewn field, about 30 kilometers across. And then the last one, which of course I'm most interested in is the the Australasian strewn field, which is absolutely enormous, which stretches for over 10,000 kilometers from Antarctica up to China, and so absolutely enormous. So you've only got, so the first thing you got there is you've only got five of these strewn fields. Now you think about history of Earth, you know, 4.5 billion years, you've only got five. So straight away, you know, you're dealing with something unusual, something rather anomalous. Now with, with all of these strewn fields, um, I particularly focus on the Australasian one because of a range of anomalies that it has. But I'm a, I'm also very aware that We we should be rethinking all of them because the the current hypothesis is that they have been um, created in impacts from asteroids and that these are ejecta from these these events. But now there's a few problems with that. The first thing is, of course, we've had lots of impacts on this planet, but we don't have lots of strewn fields, we have five. So why don't we find these tektites at other impact sites, right? what we find instead is is standard melt glass now when it, when an asteroid impacts obviously you get a very brief instantaneous superheating you know super pressure wave and that obviously melts a lot of rock it throws out material it turns some material to gas and it also melts you know the the crater and some of the rock that's thrown out so what you what you'll have is a very foamy kind of glass. There's a lot of bubbles in it. So this is a very fast event. So rock is melted, a lot of bubbles trapped in it, also traps sometimes soil or organic matter. And the glass is what's called heter- heterogeneous it's, it's not very homogenous so it's not so you'll have different chemicals in different bits depending on what kind of rock was impacted so say for you here area was half granite and half sandstone you're going to have some of that glass is very much just melted sandstone and some of it's just melted granite so it's not homogenous right and then you, you also have the fact that some of it will be part melt so at the edges of a crater so you have partly melted rock so these are all classical things from an asteroid impact with impact glass uh, An impact glass is very similar to glasses that um, are produced in in nuclear tests, and again, you'll find that you have this foamy kind of glass with a lot of bubbles and stuff. I'm sure some people out there have probably seen images of the melt glasses from you know test sites. It's very similar. Tectites are in fact much more similar to volcanic glasses. Now, volcanic glasses, seen essentially in calderas, being being superheated over a long period of time. And, and that gives a kind of a process of fining. And we use fining in making artificial glasses because what you want to do is essentially remove the bubbles. You want to and you want to end up with an evenly mixed, homogeneous glass without bubbles of high quality. Now that that takes time and obviously we would do it in a controlled manner over time at the you know the right heat and like for the, the the compounds and stuff, and so you know obviously we control all that process, but that takes time. So there's been a problem from the beginning with these tektites in that it was assumed they must be volcanic glasses because they were so similar to volcanic glasses. And in fact, the first ever um, scientific writings on the topic was a paper by Charles Darwin, the you know the evolutionary theorist, saying that he thought that they were volcanic bombs that had been Blown out of volcanic eruptions, um, that was about 1850 something. So, and then so this this debate has been going on since then as to how these materials formed, right? And then there was all kinds of other theories. People, was it a lost technology of ancient people? Was it um, lightning hitting clouds of dust? You know, so there was a whole range of you know of hypotheses that were argued over in the early stages of investigating tektites. Um, but you have this problem that in the end that they they cannot be produced in those ways that there has to be some kind of high energy event, which also is prolonged. Now, there was two back in the sort of 1950s and sixties, they came to a conclusion that there was only really a couple of different possibilities. Either there had been an impact on earth. We've touched on this idea. There's been an impact, it's melted the glass, it's thrown it out. And that there's just some aspect of this, we don't understand, but it is an impact or that there was a, an event on the moon where you've had some kind of impact where it's hit perhaps volcanic materials from lunar volcanoes, and that this material has then been sent across to Earth and has rained down. You know, at different points in time, because these tectites are from different periods. You know, very different periods, uh, some millions of years older than others. Right. So, so they, they assume maybe there've been a few of these events, and that this material rained down. Now. That answered some of the problems, because if you've got a, a caldera on the moon and it's, you know, find the material into a glass, and so that when it's been hit, the glass has then been sent across to earth, then you have a mechanism for why it's homogenous glass and without bubbles in it and all the rest of it. So that fit very well. And, and it also fitted with another aspect of this story, which is Australite tectite buttons. Uh, and Australite tectite buttons are, are unique, uh, all the different kinds of tectites because, they are quite clearly the product of entry or re-entry into the Earth's atmosphere. Now, you have essentially a a kind of a shield shaped or um, nose cone shaped artifact that, um, you know, it's it's quite apparent that it's a a sphere that is melted at its front side, and that the glass has run backwards. And you can see the remnant of the the sphere, so you can see that, that stick out the back, and then this shell at the front, like a nose cone shape, which is obviously slightly fatter at the front. Now, a lot of NASA engineers took an interest in this stuff because it was very obvious that it's formed in entry or entry. You know, so of course there was a an immediate interest in understanding the aerodynamic forces that had gone to work on this glass and also led them to this idea that it was probably extraterrestrial in origin. Um, and so that that really expanded the topic of tectites into this other area that, you know, that well, how do we explain this additional feature? You know, if it's coming from the moon, that kind of worked because then you say, okay, this material's maybe it's solidified in space. You have these spheres of glass that have cooled after being knocked off the moon. You know, obviously they take a spherical shape because they're in a vacuum. You've got liquid in a vacuum, takes a spherical shape. Um, then it would come across to Earth. Enters and it had to be at quite a shallow angle, a very shallow angle, essentially almost horizontal to the plane of the earth. Right? So, so you a very shallow angle at speeds just somewhat under the um, escape velocity, which is about 11 kilometers a second. So, something around between they think between six and 10 kilometers per second, obviously extremely fast, but you know, not quite at the speed rate, it would just zoom back out of the atmosphere. that these then gradually enter and they get a secondary heating and so you've you've got this that's why they know that this has been heated once it's become a homogenous glass and then there's secondary heating on a cool body and that you have then this form that uh, appears this kind of you know this distinctive aerodynamic shaping so this was this was a, a, an argument that went on for many years between mostly NASA engineers. I mean, I've gone through a lot of these, the papers on this topic, and you find that actually yeah, most of the lunar origin hypothesis guys were NASA scientists, NASA engineers particularly. And then on the other side, you have the impact people, who mostly kind of geologists, you know, in universities and you know, chemists, and people that that took an interest as well, because it's you know it's a mystery that's gone on for over a hundred years, one hundred and fifty years. So you can imagine all kinds of scientists have been involved with this over that time. And many wanting to make a name for themselves by solving, you know, an outstanding scientific mystery. So uh, there's hundreds of papers on this. I mean, there's books, there's everything. Um, but this this argument between the two camps was essentially resolved uh, when we got lunar samples back from the moon. In the, you know, in the, obviously in the original sort of lunar programs, brought back material. Analysis on that led to the conclusion that the surface of the moon had far less silica than they'd expected and other components of the rock as well were wrong and it just it just couldn't be the source of tektites and so that was kind of that was kind of a, a bit of a death blow for the lunar hypothesis and so there was this kind of by default asteroid impacts on earth became the consensus model now to put on a simple way of looking at that i consider that it's like saying you know I'm the champion of the world, you know. I, I've won this fight by the other guy dying of a heart attack, right? So it's not, it's not that they had the best theory, it's the, uh, the other theory collapsed because of other reasons, right? right? But the anomalies that couldn't be explained by an impact remained. And there was anomalies that could only be explained by an extraterrestrial event. And so this left a sort of a conundrum because what else is it, right? And there's a couple of problems here as well that they by looking at the what's called the um well there's data in terms of when uh, energy in space essentially impacts objects we get decay we can see we get isotopes and stuff that we know that how roughly how long something's been in space okay it was called cosmogenic radiation effects and so what they found is that it, it appeared that this material couldn't have formed beyond the earth moon system because it would have had much higher levels of um, beryllium and aluminium-26 and stuff. So but, but, so they, they kind of knew that, well, it's kind of limited or it's arrived here in a larger body, which has been broken up. And then the surface beryllium and aluminium has, has kind of dissipated into this mix. Uh, but again, that starts pointing to a, an unusual body anyway. But so the assumption was, well, we can only be lunar material or earth material, earth materials one. So there was never an attempt to say, well, is there another hypothesis here that could explain all of the anomalies? Right. And now I'm not going to say this because of any particular bias. I think it's just that that's, you know, it, it didn't occur to people back then. What else it could be, really? I think that's one of the problems. I mean, if I go on a bit, I mean, I don't know if you want to just to check anything there. if It didn't make sense or if I missed any.
0: Right now is the most critical time for us to take back control of our food supply and become self-reliant by having our very own food forest. Transform your yard into a food forest and create a system of self-reliance that's easy and enjoyable with our friends at Food Forest Abundance. No matter where you're starting from, you can become more self-reliant you can take your self-reliance to the next level by becoming a producer of your own food through growing and foraging. Learn how to turn your property into an income-producing source of economic self-reliance. If you're ready to go off-grid, click the link in the description and use coupon code FORBIDDEN for discounts on your very own food forest with food forest abundance. That uh, that that's that sounds great. Um, If yeah, if you have anything else to to add before uh, before we move on, definitely. Sure.
1: Um, So they had this, you know. So obviously, this had this kind of collapse in the one side of the theory, but there's all these things that remain. I mean, not only do you have this this finding, obviously, of the glass, uh, and also, of course, you have this, you know, this isotope data. We know, and then we have this shaping of these these buttons that suggest extraterrestrial arrival. Um, but also, I mean, even looking at the Australasian strewn field, I mean, it's, you know, again, people can pretty find this. It's on Wikipedia and elsewhere. I mean, I have images, which, you know, those I can supply to you, um, which basically um, are It's abs- an absolutely enormous. I mean, I don't know. I can possibly try and share a screen if you want. If I can share a picture if you like. Yeah, sure. Give works. me one
0: second so I can allow you to share here. Okay, you should be good, okay All right, I'll try that
1: just to show um one image Let's see if it... All right can you see that? yes, All right so it gives gives people an idea I mean we're talking about an absolutely enormous area here, and um you basically got material in Southeast Asia. There's a particular type of Australasian tectite called Muong Nong tectites. Now, this is a layered tectites, where instead of having these, well I will show you in a minute what the others look like, instead of having sort of small spheres and dumbbell shapes and teardrop shapes, which are kind of classical, um, both ejector and in terms of you know aerial explosions or anything like that you have certain shapes that will form but what we have in southeast asia in laos is muong nong is a completely unlike that is a is kind of almost chunks of material up to i think 25 kilos and in, in a kind of strange layering now that's just in that area then you have of course you have the other i would say that the button tectites which are mo- mostly found across southern australia in fact n- nearly entirely there are some in parts of southeast asia as well but not in the rest of the field. So you've got these kind of button shapes up here, button shapes down here, and then you have the Muong Nong here. And then you also have microtectites, which are less than a millimeter across. And those are mostly out in these, in these cybers. We've got the oceans going out to Madagascar and out beyond um, Australasia, you know. And so you've got these, and, and also down in Antarctica, which is it's considered really be the end of the strewn field because the microtectites in Antarctica suggest that they have been heated longer than any of the other pieces that have been found so that they appear to be the end of the strewn field. So the way I look at this is we most likely have an explosive event somewhere around here and that we have then micro tektites, which end up propelled all the way down here, but also these button tectites, which are skipping along the top of the atmosphere almost, I say, almost horizontal to the plane of the Earth, and that they are melting as they come in. So then they fall down across Australia and go the other way as well. So we have some exploding around here. So some of them are bouncing to the north, some are propelled to the south as this object explodes. And then we have the microtech which are blown all the way out on these sides here. An absolutely enormous event, you know, quite... I mean, straight away, I think it's striking in that you think, well, what kind of impact could propel material so far? Now, consider that the... Current hypothesis of an impact suggests something hitting somewhere in Southeast Asia. Now, if you think about it, how on earth is that going to propel anything all the way down to Southern Australia? I mean, when you look at, um, when you look at impacts, technically, you should see stuff that is blown about 400 to 1,000 kilometers at the most. right? I'll just quickly show as well here, just for anyone who's not familiar what these tektites look like. you can see you have obviously a very classic kind of nose cone shape um and additionally obviously this one on the left shows you that these are like highly well they look crystalline but in fact they have no crystals in them but they're obviously very glassy they're a translucent glass you know it's very apparent what they are now um if i will close that if i can i will end screen share so we can go back let me see just make sure i know what i'm doing is that is it a simple process i'm not the first time i've ever done screen share so bear with me yeah okay if you end it there yeah okay great um so just gives people an idea what these button texts like look like and this strewn field so we have this massive distribution absolutely enormous right in fact it covers something like 20 percent of the earth's surface has australasian tectite on it um, and it, completely unlike the other strewn fields which are relatively condensed and fairly fairly small. I mean, they're large, but, you know, compared to that, all four of them and more would fit into it. Um, so we have all these anomalies and then we have this argument going on, you know, as to how exactly can this happen? How does material get thrown so far? And, and nobody's been able to come up with the energy to do this in the in the physics of this. The other, the other idea they came up with was perhaps that there was a, a gas that was pushed up into the atmosphere and burst through into the upper atmosphere, carried material up there, and then it was carried almost you know long you know distributed almost in the in the winds almost you know carried in the upper atmosphere and raining down well that works for a gas and for dust it doesn't work for chunks of glass because they would fall very quickly after such an event and they shouldn't even get up that high So, if you look at the way and again i've read the papers on this it suggests any larger material should fall down long before it gets to the upper atmosphere it should just be gas and dust up there Right. So if this theory doesn't work and we know that explosive kind of energy should only propel it for a few hundred kilometers, how on earth does it get 10,000 kilometers away? Right. So that's been one of the stumbling blocks on, on the whole theory is that, you know, even if you, you, know, you want to accept an asteroid impact, you have these problems in the laws of physics that we just do not have a way for an impact to propel material so far, not material of this type. And that then we also know it has to have gone into space. It cannot be just, that it was simply propelled through the air because we can see the effects of, of this re-entry on it. And it, you know they've calculated the speeds, they know it has to be between six and 10 kilometers a second, again, close to these, um, the speeds for exiting the earth. And on top of that, we can see you know that there's, because of the way it's shaped and melted, it has to be these very shallow angles. So it has to really be in orbit, right? And that and that's the crux. And this is what a lot of the NASA engineers kind of got to. say, "Well, look, if you want to explain this away as a terrestrial impact, you have some major problems. If you know, first of all, you've got what's called um, uh, Mose's law, which is a law on how bubbles and stuff move in liquids. So if you've got a problem there. it's because you've got this finding process, and we know that if you're going to say this has happened in an instantaneous event, it's breaking Mose's law. And, it says, and that is a law that you know has been validated time and time again in, in physics." Um, And then on top of that, then you have this other problem that the energy isn't there to carry this material. It's going to the resistance on it. If you think you've got material thrown out, even if it's thrown out at 10 kilometers a second, the the air pressure acting on that is incredible because it's, it's pushing up against our atmosphere at this incredible speed. So the counter forces slow it down very rapidly and it will fall from the air, usually quite close to the crater, but potentially a few hundred kilometers, but, but not thousands. So these, these are, you know, we deal with laws of physics. And so obviously the math has been done. And, and in one of the NASA papers, they kind of say, well, look, the only way we can imagine this being an impact is somehow you end up with a giant blob of kind of translucent glass, silica glass material being thrown all the way up into space and he said, first of all, that's an unlikely kind of object that you it's somehow formed in this impact. And then it reaches space. And then it starts ablating, which is, you know, the forces acting on it, um, liquid glass coming off of it into smaller pieces. And you have this ablation effect on it as it travels through the atmosphere. It has to be in orbit. then another NASA paper basically just comes up straight and says, look, it has to be a satellite of Earth, really. It has to be some kind of natural satellite in orbit, breaking up. And so we, we know that similar things have happened with with artificial satellites. And also there's a a famous case of a, uh, there was back in the early part of last century, there was an event where an asteroid broke up. That's the theory anyway. And there was a whole train of asteroids in the sky that were moving horizontally through the air, right? So people were watching across America. And there was a whole load of like dozens of pieces and they would come almost in rows they, so they realized that these weren't coming from a particular point in the sky. They were traveling in orbit around Earth. And the, the fear on that is it was a an asteroid that broke up. And so of course the pieces carried on in orbit. And so you see it kind of slowly parading across the sky. So we know that that's kind of what happens if you have an object in orbit breaking up like a natural moon. And occasionally Earth does capture small asteroids temporarily, usually, and they're usually very small. say bus size. I mean, recently, there was one about bus size that was captured temporarily, and then you know left orbit again. Um, but so if you have an object of a satellite of the Earth, and it breaks up, then you start getting an explanation of this that you know, it's already in orbit, and these pieces are following orbital paths. And that's why we're getting this skipping along the atmosphere, because it's, it's just been, you know, breaking up just in the edges of our atmosphere well, in space, but just on the edges. And is, as it comes in at these very shallow angles, this material is kind of in a decaying orbit and it starts to heat up, it gets this secondary heating. Now that's all well and good, but then you think, well, okay, so what kind of object is made of 70% silica, 10% aluminum, and is orbiting our planet? You know, what what is this? Because asteroids are never more than 60% silica, right? So so you have a fundamental problem because you now have an object that shouldn't exist in nature at all. And it's, uh, and of all the chances, it's ended up captured by Earth's gravity. And it's extremely rare for asteroids to be captured by Earth's gravity. So you've now got a rare event, a capture of an object, apparently, allegedly, if you like, um, and it's an object which is composed in such a way as it's unknown to science, that we don't know of any natural bodies out there that would be 75% silica. So you can see where you start hitting on this, this problem that Even if I had never read that book, you know, Valerie's book, and I hadn't been looking into this um, and say I someone, you know, myself as much as stumbled on this as a mystery and read up a bit deeper. You start to realize you're dealing with an anomalous object, which is kind of buried in these NASA papers and that has been kind of overlooked as a potential techno signature.
0: Now all of this uh, it, it points to a completely different location for basically human origins, especially for you know your ancient your regular ancient alien theorists, you know that uh, believe you know is around Africa, um, and in that area that uh, that human origins came along. But based on this, it could be around Australia, right?
1: Absolutely, yeah. I mean that's the argument I make because I mean if you get information from an artifact. okay, I haven't seen it. People, okay, well, I didn't see that, fine. But if you get information from anywhere, if that information is validated, then suddenly you have a story that you can put some more faith in, right? Because if someone says to you, the, the elves at the bottom of my garden told me there's a pot of gold buried in the woods. So you, okay, it sounds bonkers. If you see them next week and they have that pot of gold, right, no matter how strange that first story was, you're going to your your ears are going to prick up right and you're going to want to, want to know more about these elves yeah and i think that's quite reasonable because as I say, extraordinary claims take extraordinary evidence if you turn up with the pot of gold you now have extraordinary evidence for your extraordinary claims right so, so that is the that is the circumstances here that we have an extraordinary claim you know people interacting with an artef- an ancient artifact which apparently can communicate legitimate historical information to Aboriginal people, and that that information has led to the identification of an anomalous object, which meshes with their story, a crystalline body that has been essentially exploded in orbit, and has showered molten crystalline debris, like glassy debris across a whole segment of the planet. And in that same story, they're telling us survivors from this event, landed and modified early hominins to create homo sapiens so we've got the extraordinary claims but we've already got the start of the extraordinary evidence which we've always been told by the likes of carl sagan and co that we must present the extraordinary evidence right so well here we go this is extraordinary evidence and so with and with this modification event this again this is where i go into my genomic seti work and genomic seti again i should touch very quickly on that because. Genomic SETI is a legitimate field of research which has been basically ignored for a long time. Now, I was fortunate enough to be able to put a question to Seth Shostak of the SETI Institute, and I'm sure people will know of Seth, um, through um, somebody else who was interviewing him. And fortunately, my question was asked was to what he thought about the, the idea that we should be looking through the genome for evidence of messages encoded in DNA. And this is something that's been proposed by the likes of um, Professor Paul Davies, who's a very famous astrophysicist, astrobiologist and mathematician, um, I think now based in Australia, but he's proposed this, but not done it. And Steph Shostak kind of was like, yes, you know, it's kind of a good idea. And obviously Paul Davis has kind of talked about it, but nobody's ever got anyone to do it. Uh, you know, and I thought he's now ironic because it's cheap, it's easy, and it doesn't take much time. All you have to do is go through the existing records we have of genomic sciences, to look for any anomalies in there, in areas of what's called, well, highly conserved non-coding DNA. Right? And, and just to quickly explain that, the reasoning is if, if an alien race wanted to leave a message in our DNA, say they'd come here a billion years ago, right? And they wanna leave a message for us, or if they just were modifying life here a billion years ago. now. How could you, how, how might we find some evidence of their meddling in the DNA? Well, most of your information changes, you know, because obviously we have mutations, we have um, usually, well, can be deleterious, but also advantageous mutations. And so your information changes a lot. We know that obviously, because we've, we've gone from being single-celled organisms to this, right? So clearly there's been a major changes over time, but there are areas of the genome now that are very stable and those are in non coding DNA. What was once called junk DNA. Now we now know that junk DNA isn't junk it does a lot. It has a lot of regulatory purposes. It's regulating what your genes do. So although it's not genes. Um, and so in those areas there, there are areas of code that haven't changed in hundreds of millions of years, they're very stable. Now you can find the same strips of code in an aardvark, you know, in an ant in a person, you know, in some cases it's so ancient now, when you start to, if you were looking in this as a, from a genomics SETI kind of point of view and say, okay, is there anything in highly conserved DNA regions that might suggest there was tampering, you find loads actually, that you actually find there's a whole slew of things called human accelerated regions. Now I'm gonna just talk about one, the first one called HAR1, human accelerated region one, the first one found. Now, essentially the same segment of 118 letters was looked at across humans, chimpanzees, chickens, right? Chickens have been separate from chimpanzees for 300 million years, right? So plenty of time for things to change if they they would, right? And in 300 million years, there'd been two changes, two DNA letters had modified in 300 million years. That's how stable the code in these areas is. So one change every 150 million years, yeah? Then you look at the human, and they compared that to the chimp, which is supposed to be separate for maybe seven million years, right? And, and what they what they expected was no change, because of course it's nowhere near one hundred and fifty million years. There should be no change. Instead, what they found was eighteen letters had changed. So, unbelievable. That's a hence, ex- human accelerated regions. Something has accelerated the process of evolution unbelievably in those areas. Now, they're up to several hundred of these now, and nearly all of them. And again, we're going to talk about evolution and random evolution, which is, of course, the consensus view is most evolution is random events, you know, uh, obviously some shaping from the environment, some just mutations, you know, um, some of the complexities to it, but essentially mostly random, right? Then you would expect these changes to be... Really distributed throughout the system, you know, doing all sorts of different things. But what they've found so far is the vast majority, the ones they've identified and they understand to any degree, are doing things to do with the brain, particularly fetal development of the brain, that big brain that separates us from all the other primates. That these strange regions of accelerated code are mostly to do with your fetal development of the brain. So, does that sound random to anyone out there? It doesn't sound random to me. Don't stand right if you start finding there's you know hundreds of these are clustering in brain changes, others of them are to do with things like, even like our opposable thumbs, and and other areas that are you know important to what makes us human and what differentiates us from all the other primates. They're finding are mostly in those areas, and that's when we think that chimps and humans are very similar at the DNA level. Obviously, we all grew up with the idea that we were 99% the same as chimps, right. Now we know that's not true. That when you start looking at these these regions, you realise actually we're very different from chimps um, and in key areas. In fact, you don't need lots of different genes because if if you can if you can modify these areas which essentially control genetic expression, right, you can totally change what the being's like. Because if you can say change the gene that expresses how long your arm is, or how your eyes develop, or or you know how big your head is, that those Those you don't need to add lots of new genes, right? Because you you can control what those other genes are doing. You can turn them on, you can turn off genes, right? The genes that have become dormant can be switched back on. If you could, if you're like a a master of the code, and that's why I'm implicating here is masters of the code to a level that we can't comprehend, really, in terms of where we are now, fledgling genetic sciences. We're just starting to do the CRISPR and these gene drives we're not near this, where we could understand or to think because if you play with these areas, you will almost always kill the organism. And that's why they're so stable, because they are doing fundamental, essential functions for organisms, where, you know, in 150 million years, you know, there's a chance something will happen that is okay. The rest of the time, it's going to kill you or make you infertile or something, right? So that's why those changes don't persist. So can you imagine being be able to go in and change 18 of them? And we would have no idea what we were doing, 18 letter changes that we killed, almost certainly would kill them every single time. So somebody knew DNA a damn sight better than we do, a damn sight better. Right. It was playing the human being like a piano, like a sheet of music and we have to play it and turning, you know, a homo erectus or a naledi or something into a homo sapiens, you know, and probably, going further back probably the same with the separation of primates to us but i mean i i I suspect that i mean i don't focus on that in the book but again i don't think this is a one-off event i think things have been done in the past but what we do find is that there's a cluster of changes around about the time when us neanderthals and denisovans split away from superarchaic hominins, and that's now calculated to be somewhere in the 600 to 800 thousand years ago, right? And the, some of these major changes, particularly there's a chromosome two fusion event, which most people would have heard of, that's now been dated to close to 750 to 800 thousand years ago as well. And there's a few other changes happening around 800 and 750, right? Now I argue that this is happening at 780 thousand years ago. All of this because That's the dating we have on this material, right? So we know that the human brain expansion occurs close to 800,000 years ago. That's been known for a long time because in the fossil record around 800,000 years ago, there was a sudden acceleration in the the size of the human cranium and the development of the brain, right? We now know, of course, we've got this genetic information suggesting a split somewhere in that region. Again, meshing very well with the date we know from the fossil record. Genetics is always gonna have a bit of of giving it, you know, they can't say, is it on that day? So they say was 550 to 800. But we know the fossils, we know the changes happening around 800,000. We also know that with the chromosome two now, it's around 750 to 800. And then with these other changes, the implicated dates are in that spot, right? In the middle of the range is around that 780. So we know that these things are concentrating around that time, major changes in the human system. And then we also have the breakup of a strange object, in our skies at that time. And the third thing, the clincher as well, which again touched on briefly was, we're told in this information that there is a asteroid bombardment, and this is not an accident. There is a a deliberate asteroid bombardment of our planet at the same time as these events are happening, that there has been a, a engineered cataclysm really, and that the planet is hit from multiple sides. Now, it turns out that in 2016, a German geological team found evidence of a multi directional bombardment around 780 to 790,000 years ago, with objects um, landing in Central America, um, in Southeast Asia, down in Tasmania, um, I believe also possibly in Canada, but there's been at least several objects were impacting from different directions, right, same date, again, so you've now got the breakup of some strange glassy object in space a multi-directional impact event, changes in hominins, anomalous changes in hominins. And on top of that, just happens to be when the last full magnetic reversal of the planet happened, right? 780, again, another major massive anomalous event on the same time. And, and funnily enough, we've just recently, as this, well, this is, I think the process still be investigated. There's evidence that an object landed in Antarctica in the ice, which left a, a hole 200 miles by 200 miles. So they think that would be an object comparable with the one that caused the extinctions of the dinosaurs, right? Wow. So doesn't it seem like a lot was going on at that it time? It
0: does. Uh, and I want to go back to the, you were talking about the size of the ship in Antarctica. What about the the one that, the initial ship that we're, we're first talking about? How big mm-hmm. do you think that that one was? I would
1: suggest that this is many kilometers across, that this is... Because the hypothesis, when they look at the amount of debris from the Australasian tektite strewn field, and we're talking, you know, millions and millions of tons, I think it was something like, um, I compared it to the the Great Wall of China, and it was something like, I don't know, it was like dozens of them or something, if you think about material. So you start ending up with an enormous object. And when they work out the size, they said, you know, I mean, it's a couple of kilometers or so across, but that's usually based on the idea of solid objects as well. So I mean, if we're talking about a hollow object, a craft, you know, a large mothership type object, then it's going to be even bigger. So this is going to be, this would, would have been a craft miles across or kilometers across. So exactly how big is difficult to say, but we I mean, obviously they're estimating from the amount of debris they've got. We've got millions, I think it's maybe even calculated to be possibly billions of tons initially that would have rained down. So a lot of it's end up in the ocean, you know, obviously we only know the bits we found. So they have to extrapolate from the extraordinary amount they found of this tectite. type that how much was originally fell 780,000 years ago. And it ends up being an enormous figure. So I, I think we're talking about something many, many kilometers across.
0: Now we have a few minutes left. I want to to get into your thoughts on what's happening right now when it comes to the mainstream media, even you know, United States government when it comes to UFOs, Uh, you know, it seems like the past couple of years, it's just been building. We've been hearing more in -hmm. the mainstream media about it. Um, You know, we've got these declassified documents coming out. And I just find it odd the timing that this is all happening all of a sudden right now. And I'm wondering, what what are your thoughts on it? Do you think it's some sort of preparation? Do you think they know something that it's going to be inevitable that we're going to find something out soon? What do you think is going on there?
1: Well, for a start, I find it impossible to believe that they don't know what I know. And if they know what I know, then I can see why they'd be very hesitant about progressing with their disclosure, because, I mean, it's, you know, it's one thing to say, isn't it, that maybe we've detected I know, a, a beam in space, you know, that there's some signal of life out there, um, or even that, you know, that, you know, that there's some piece of debris on Mars, I mean, even that would be quite you know, rocking the world in our understanding of things if we find an artifact on Mars. And again, many people would suggest that we have found artifacts on Mars and obviously that NASA hasn't come out with that, which seems quite likely. But how do they go about the story of that? Not only are they here, but they've been here a long time. They've made us, right? And that's a big one. They've actually made us what they made us for, right? a whole load of questions start flowing out of that, where you can see, well, to see why they might might not want to go on the TV tomorrow and say, Hey, you know, turns out we've been made by aliens. This is all some crazy alien experiment. They've been here, they've got mile sized crafts. And, you know, so I, I think there's that. And obviously, you know, you hear about accounts where people are seeing craft of many miles across. Right. So, I mean, again, of course, we're going into um, claims where we don't have, much more than the odd grainy photo. But you know, people are claiming objects many miles across. And here we are seeing evidence that in the past, craft of many miles across have been here. And that so there is technology like that, like what people are seeing now. There's descriptions of saucer craft coming down from this original object, the, the survivors landing, doing this modification. Today, we've seen saucer craft DNA modification is being claimed by people. And in fact, some science is coming out to suggest some of these contactees have changes in their DNA, right? which is being done by um, some very high-profile scientists who've been looking at this, that encounters seem to be sometimes doing something to the brain and to DNA. So those technologies that are in that information, that seems to be happening today. So you, you can kind of see that the nervousness, I think we are going to get a very controlled disclosure because the problem we have is that This destabilizes the the top tier of our power structures and the hierarchy. So it's not that the average person is gonna be so like, ah, so scared. I don't think that's the problem. I think the problem is who stands to lose the most from saying, hey, there's something more powerful right here nearby. Those at the top, those that are supposed to be the the greatest military mites on the planet. Those that are supposed to be the, the, the wisest and the best leaders of this planet. They'd be eclipsed in a second if there's an a million year old intelligence hovering nearby, right? So you start to see that the threat that they talk about, the threat is to them. The threat is not to us because if any of these intelligences wanted to do away with us, it would be child's play. I mean, they could launch a comet at us, right? Take us out with the comet. We wouldn't even know it was them. We'd just be wiped out. So, I mean, rain viruses from space, no problem. Send a... a a robot probe into the upper atmosphere, rain-targeted genomic viruses that are targeted at humans, wipe us all out in a few weeks. I mean, we couldn't fight against them. It's like the idea of, people talking about aliens, it's like being on a small island um, and you've got cannons or something and the US Navy is attacking, right? Because just sails around, firing rockets in until there's just dust. I mean, if you're not a space-faring species, you can't fight a space-faring species. I mean, you probably wouldn't even meet it. It Just send its robots to take you, know, do you know, what I mean? you can see the scenarios. So it's not that they're threatening us, at least not at this stage. That The fear is for the hierarchy. And I think that's why we're going to see a, a very a very controlled kind of disclosure that may well paint it as a threat and that they need to militarize and all that. It's something that suits them, you know, and that's the problem. I think that's why it has to be that we go around that. And that's where this kind of information and possibly other people that have information that's been guided by those intelligences. All of this is being guided by the intelligences. I mean, you know, everything I've you know, i come up with wouldn't have been looking at any of this if those intelligences hadn't caused that contact event with the artifact. I wouldn't have heard of Australite, wouldn't know anything about it. Wouldn't have even read about these impacts. And I, honestly, I would have known nothing about it. And I'd say that even as someone who's been interested in mysteries all my life, I would never heard of Australite tektites until this. Didn't, didn't know there was 150 year long mystery. So, I mean, they've guided all of this and like you, I mean, I've heard, you know, obviously other people who are having things happen, who admit that they're being directed by these intelligences, you know, there's um, many cases where that's going on at the moment. So I think that, that there is gonna be a kind of disclosure from the official side, which is gonna be very dumbed down, uh, a lot of dishonesty in it. And there's a disclosure that's happening behind that, which is being guided by those intelligences
0: yeah i think one of the the most interesting things that happened a couple of years ago was the uh, muamua what they now are saying Mm. is basically a probe like you were mentioning earlier these things could be millions of years old you know just going around space that was one of the the most interesting things that i saw come out
1: absolutely yeah abby loeb and he's been very critical of the, the, the the academic community because you know he's he's pointed out that it's it's, you know, that it's never aliens and, you know, we shouldn't look at aliens and, and that, but yet it's okay to, you know, do a PhD in um, completely theoretical stuff, like, you know, m- many worlds theories and multiple universes and, you know, that's okay. And dark matter, no evidence exists, but okay, dark matter, you know, that's all reasonable. But if, if you want to talk about extraterrestrial, particularly advanced extraterrestrial, not, not just microbes, as soon as you go into that, there's a kind of a, a disdain and, and a risk to your career and that even, you know, him coming out and saying he thought it was a probe was, it was being met with so much hostility. I mean, from other astronomers that he's out, you know, I'm not saying that maybe some criticisms are deserved, but he's obviously, he's had a lot of attacking and just for the idea of suggesting it, even though it's a reasonable hypothesis for what was observed, you know, that it, this object has anomalous aspects to it. It's reflectivity, the way it behaved with interacting sunlight, um, the shape of it, which seems to be essentially a Disc, the closest. And the funny thing is, we keep getting shown this cigar rock in the art. But as, as Abby Lerd points out, the data fits best with some kind of disc, a flat disc. So, again, is that deliberate to make people poo poo it? They don't want to show it actually how the data suggests it looks because it's right. going to look very artificial, isn't it? A big, thin disc flying along, right? Um, so, that's, I think, that we've got that happening as well. It's a kind of a, a shift in the paradigm there because obviously we've got you know, Harvard astronomer saying, you know, aliens basically probably have come through in the last couple of years. So there's a lot happening right now. Mars, you know, the claims that they're gonna test for life again after 40 odd years where they found life with the Viking program and have never bothered going back to check for it again, which seems yeah. very controlled. The idea that, you know, that we wouldn't have just gone straight back and confirmed that. So it, it, I think it's all go at the moment with with some kind of scientific shift in the narrative and also with a controlled kind of UFO contact alien, that narrative is now shifting with what's happened with the DoD and with you know the the videos that came out and obviously that's led to a whole plethora of things. But again, I, I I think it's a bit of a sideshow. I think all of that's a sideshow because if if you look what I'm presenting here, and I don't want to sort of blow my own trumpet because I'd be, I'd be quite straight. I wouldn't find I wouldn't have known about any of this without the intelligences. So I'm not going to say oh I'm this. You know, that it's, I'm the great I am and I've, I've done all this because I, I wouldn't have known about it. So they are disclosing things themselves. They say, well, look, you know, here, yeah, look, here's some information, follow it up and that you might find out that we're real and that we've been here and that we're related to you. And if we wanted to wipe you out, you'd have already been gone. So calm down um, and get ready in a process for a more open contact. And I, I think that's what we're in now is in a process for that. But we have to choose in that which one of these narratives are we going to go with this narrative they're kind of giving us which i think is really evidential uh, or one which is all whispers and shadows and people in corridors in the pentagon and and god only knows what is true of it because we don't really we get documents but you know document of what there's no picture there's you know there's, there's nothing you know there's not a picture of an alien that you know that you can believe or there's not so tangible we get claims and stories and i mean and i'm I just find that that's gonna be is a quagmire that we've been in for 70 years in ufology, right? The quagmire of, of, of shady documents that, oh, are they really secret documents or are they disinfo? Um, and you know, claims from insiders, uh, and, and some of them well-meaning insiders, I'm sure, but you can't validate any of it, right? So you just have to take their word for it. Um, whispers of artifacts and craft debris, but you can't see any of it, you can't test any of it. Um, we will be stuck in that quagmire forever and too many people are still stuck in it and they're falling in that trap where I think that you're totally in the control of the Pentagon and, and, and at their whims as to what you will learn and what narrative you will end up with. And personally, I don't think that's the way to go. I think what we need is, is this more objective approach with evidence that's tangible. I mean, I'm sorry that it's technical. I know that people don't like it in some ways. They say, well, I don't like what Bruce is selling because I have to think. I have to go and read some papers. And, you know, I, I actually have to understand what a type is. And, you know, I just want a video with a gray alien in it. You know, <laughs> I get it. I mean, I get it. I do understand why people would leap to that and to, the, and to the excitement of the stories of some guy went in an alien base and he was a general and he saw, I get it because I, I, I feel compelled to those fascinating stories as well. But we have to know there's no evidence to them, right? It's just take it or leave it stuff, right? Um, and I think it's time that we grew up and we did the hard work where you said, well, okay, there's actual evidence that we can actually explore, which we can take to a scientist and they can look at. Like, Isn't that, what everyone said they wanted. Well, it's here, but it's, will anyone engage with it? And I, you know, I just wonder because it takes effort.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I wonder the same thing. We definitely live in fascinating times right now, and I'm very interested to see how it's all going to play out. And Bruce, I want to thank you so much again for coming on today. Uh, before you head out, uh, let everyone know uh, website, social media, anything else you, you have going uh, where they can find you. Sure.
1: Um, yeah. People want to find me. The, I'm on Facebook. I don't use it a lot, but I can be contacted through there and my name and Bruce R. Fenton page and, and a personal page. And also uh, Twitter. I've got a, my handle there is HH for hybrid humans. And also I have a website, brucerfenton.com. And if someone has something, that, you know, information or something they to get to me, I'm bruce at brucefenton.info as well. So if you want to request a signed copy of the book or something like that, um, and again, books are on Amazon, and uh, the also on Amazon Prime is the, the video. If you look for seven hundred eighty thousand and my name, you will find that. So, I mean, they can reach me for any of that, and obviously, I appreciate anyone who does check out the book and the paper I'm writing. I hope to have done in about two weeks.
0: Awesome, we'll be looking forward to it, Bruce. Thanks again for coming on, and uh, we'll have you back on to talk about your paper.
1: Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. It's been great. All right, thanks for letting we- me explain it.
0: All right, and next time, uh, until next time, everyone else, have an excellent Mm -hmm. evening.